The opening of Parshas Vayetze is famous for the dramatic dream, the prophetic dream that Yaakov has as he's running away from his brother and he lies down to sleep and he sees the famous ladder, Sulav Mutzav Artsav, Rosha Magia Chamaima, the ladder going all the way up to heaven and the angels are Ulim Vyordimbo, the angels going up and going down. And in the aftermath and the culmination of that incredible and inspiring prophetic dream, we read towards the end of Perach how Yaakov wakes up and he takes a vow. If Hashem will be with me, he'll guard me on this way, this way that I'm going. If he'll give me bread to eat and clothing to wear, if I can return safely to the house of my father eventually, then Hashem will be for me a God. The declaration that the Torah describes as a vow that Yaakov takes is, at first glance, quite shocking. It certainly seems like he's making his commitment to Hashem, that which he completes his nether with. That God will be my God, Hashem will be my God. It certainly seems like he's making that conditional on Hashem giving him good things in the previous Pasuk. If he protects him, gives him food, and gives him clothing. And it just seems to be impossible and inconceivable, we would think, that Yaakov, such a tzaddik, would make his entire commitment to Hashem conditional on Hashem living up to his promises to Yaakov. Moreover, in a more subtle problem with these psukim, is that the very things that Yaakov is asking for, protection, returning to his father's house, etc., are the very things that in his prophetic dream he had already been promised. So what happened that all of a sudden, right after he wakes up, he's already doubting what Hashem had just promised him? Basically, there are two approaches in the Mepharshim to try to understand what Yaakov is doing in these psukim generally, and specifically, what is meant by that climactic declaration of Ahaya Hashem Li Le'elukim. Rashi, throughout the previous Pasuk, the initial Pasuk, explains that Yaakov is not chas v'shalom, making anything conditional. Rather, he's merely outlining what he will be able to do in response when each detail in the dream is actually fulfilled. It's just a description of events. If these things happen to me, then I'll be able to do these things. Not that I'll only do them if, but rather as a simple declaration of reality, it will be possible for me to do X and Y when these good things happen to me. Moreover, when it comes to that climactic declaration, Rashi explains, based on the Medrash, that this is actually not just a statement, but in fact almost a tefillah, a prayer, that if everything goes well, and Yachol Shmo Alai, Hashem's name will rest upon me, that I'll be able to not only be religious and virtuous on my own, but all of my zera, all of my children, will be loyal and faithful followers to Hashem. I'll have no wayward children, no children who go off the derech. He's davening that not only should he be successful and close to Hashem, but hopefully Hashem's promise should be fulfilled through his children, grandchildren, and for all generations. Rashbam, in a similar vein, says that this last statement, is a prayer, it's not a condition, it's just a tefillah, 
Moreover, the Sforno also, keeping in this vein, explains that the various phrases that Yaakov mentioned are requests, each in their own way, for Hashem to remove various physical impediments which could become uh, problems when it comes to spiritual growth. We often uh, artificially bifurcate between spiritual and religious challenges, but Chazal in many places, and the Sforno references this, point out that sometimes physical impediments can actually be, physical challenges can actually be impediments to spiritual growth. And therefore, Yaakov is praying that and asking Hashem, if he removes those things, then not as a condition, like if you don't do this, I won't do it, but rather simply as a mitzvah, that if I'm struggling with parnasa, if I'm struggling with certain basic human needs and necessities, I won't be able to fulfill my spiritual promise. All of this, as I say, is somewhat one approach whatever the nuances are between Rashi, Rashbam, Sforno, and others who fall into this camp, that this is really state, either tefillot slash statements of Yaakov, but certainly not conditional uh, you know, state conditions that he's placing on Hashem. A contrast to all of this is the explanation of the Ramban. The Ramban understands at least this last phrase, that Haya Hashem lila elokim in a completely different way. That this is not part of the request, and certainly not a condition, Rather, it's a result. As a result of Hashem's promise, which was made back on Pasuk uh, Tezvav, I believe it is, Hashem tells him that I'll watch you, I'll return you, I'll return you to Eretz Yisrael. You're about to leave, but I'll return you back one day, Hashem promises, to Eretz Yisrael. That Hashem, the Ramban explains that it's only now, after having this prophetic dream, that Yaakov realizes that in order to have a complete and full relationship with Hashem, it has to be done in Eretz Yisrael. That is the ultimate place for spiritual fulfillment for a Jew. It's now that Yaakov first and fully realizes that I'll be able to have that complete relationship with Hashem only once I return to the place of my father, of Eretz Yisrael. And it's only then that Hashem will truly be for me, Elohim. Only then, Vahayali, Hashem li, Elohim. Not as a condition, not as a taunt, ultimatum, chas shalom. It's just a metzius. It's an acknowledgement of a reality to be a complete Jew, a Jew must be in Eretz Yisrael. And this is something that many of you know is a motif that is found in many of the commentary and writings of the Ramban. And this is one of, if not the first time, in a sense explaining this enigmatic fubsukim in our Parsha, where the Ramban outlines and puts forth this thesis of his, how just how central being in Eretz Yisrael is to the spiritual development of a Jew. Yaakov continues his journey, fleeing his parental home to avoid the danger coming from his bloodthirsty brother Esav. Having just completed the famous dream of of the heavenly bound ladder with the angels going up and going down, the Torah continues and tells us in the beginning of Perkavtes how Yaakov's journey continues eastward. And how then he sees Vayar v'hine be'er basadeh. He sees a well, and not only a well, he sees flocks of sheep lying beside it, a stone, an evan, a big stone, covering the mouth of the well. He then sees how they would roll the stone off the well, and eventually shepherds come with their flocks to water them. Yaakov engages them in conversation, and when he finds out they're from Haran, he immediately asks them, do you know my relative 
You know, my kinsman Lavan, they say that not only do we know him, look, here comes his daughter Rachel. The story unfolds with Yaakov helping in the watering of Rachel's sheep. Eventually they begin conversation. Yaakov eventually is taken home to meet her father. And we all know how the story ends. The incredible courtship, the love story with Rachel, the tragic story with Leah, and how eventually they become a unified family. And the rest, as they say, is history. It's easy to overlook this initial recounting the story at the well. After all, everything that happens with Yaakov and the two sisters in Lovan's house, and of course, before that, the dream at the with the latter, these are seminal, incredible, important events in the life of the Torah, the Avos. But in this little story tucked in between the transition story, as he meets the shepherds at the well, and eventually there, Rachel, the Baal HaTurim, one of the great medieval commentaries from the 13th and 14th century, Baal Turim notices and points our attention to the fact that this story didn't just take, happen to take place near a well, but the Torah in these few psukim mention the word be'er, or some form of it, seven different times. In fact, the Baal Turim continues and says five of the times it says ha-be'er, with the he-ha-yedia, and three of the times it describes something happening on the well, al-pi ha-be'er. Seven overall, five with the he, three al-pi. And the Baal Turim continues in an insight which is characteristic of his general commentary which focuses very much on numerology, says the Balturim, this is not a coincidence. The seven, five, and three are actually ramazim, subtle hints embedded in the Torah text that allude to the following. The seven refers to the seven alios when we read the Torah on Shabbos. The five to the five alios when we read the Torah on Yantif. And the three referring to, hinting at, the three alios when we read the Torah during the week. This is the observation, the insight of the Balaturim. And while it's, at, on the one hand, fascinating, it is cryptic, to say the least. What could there possibly be a connection? How could there be a connection? What could the connection be between how many aliyahs we give at various times for the Torah and this story of the well and Yaakov meeting the shepherds and eventually Rachel? Ramosha Feinstein, in the Sefer Darash Moshe, suggests that, in fact, what is being conveyed by this brief insight of the Balaturim is, in fact, a fundamental and significant lesson in life and in Jewish thought. Think about it. Yaakov spent most of his life in a spiritual cocoon, living in the house of Yitzchak. According to tradition, according to the Chazal and our Masorah, his initial foray outside the house had him spend 14 more years in what is known as Yeshiva's Shem Ve'ever, that ancient biblical yeshiva which transmitted whatever it meant to study Torah in those days, and it's hard to understand what that means, but this is a tradition that we had. He's now well into his 70s, and he sees this Be'er Mayim, this well of water. And it's not just that he sees the well of water, he sees, and the Torah is describing it, how people work how they have flocks of sheep, they tend the sheep, they feed the sheep, they give the sheep water to drink. And he understands that in fact, something significant is going on, perhaps something he never realized 
in the spiritual cocoon that was the first stage of his life. And that is, Sharotzon Hashem Yisbarach Shiyasku Yeshuva Shalolam. He sees people not just earning a parnasa, making a living. They're doing that. But more than that, they're doing something that's meaningful. They're tending to the land. They're building up society, building an economy. And that is something that is actually meaningful in the eyes of Hashem, says Ramosha Feinstein. Yaakov understood that this is Ratzon Hashem, to be Osek Yeshivo Shalolam. Hashem did not create the world to be empty or even undeveloped. Un, un or underdeveloped. Rather, he wants, of course, within proper ethical and halachic frameworks, Hashem wants the world to be developed. And Yaakov, for the first time, understands that beyond just learning Torah, there's other things which are spiritually valuable and respected by Hashem. And there's nothing wrong with that. But, says Rav Moshe, Yaakov understood, and we need to understand, there can be a danger that comes along with that. And that is if we get so caught up in the genuine goodness of being osik Yeshuva Shalolam, that we forget about Torah. And therefore, exactly at this moment, Yaakov, so to speak, reminded of himself, reminded himself almost subliminally. And we, the Torah text, are supposed to be remembering that as much as we are also supposed to be like Yaakov, understanding and respecting, being involved in commerce and economy, we can never forget the importance of Kriyasa Torah, having our focus and our professional life built on a foundation of regular and periodic Torah study. That's why within every three days, Chazal Ramatakin, Shabbos, Monday, Thursday, Torah study. Because in order for all of our work to have meaning, it has to be based on something that's even more important, and that is a spiritual and ethical foundation. Yaakov understood this lesson, and we need to learn the lesson from his observation as well. In the world of Musra, we are familiar with two basic schools of thought. One is the Navardic school, which focuses on the innate limitations and weaknesses of mankind, and with an honest and unflinching approach, tries to deal with those innate weaknesses and limitations. And the other, known as the Slobodka school, which focuses not on the shiftless Adam, the weaknesses of mankind, but godless Adam, the potential for greatness, for great accomplishment, and for incredible... Uh, things that a human being can do, and to focus not on the weaknesses, but on the potential for greatness. A wonderful and inspiring example of this Slobodka school of Musr focusing on the potential for human greatness can be found in the opening episode from this week's Parsha. As we know, Yaakov is running away, running for his life, scared that his brother Esau will kill him, and the Parsha begins with Yaakov collapsing in exhaustion, falling asleep, and in that dream, in that sleeping state, having one of the great prophetic experiences of all time, and he has his famous dream of the ladder. He dreams of a ladder that is on the ground, but its head is all the way up in the heavens. And there are angels going up and down bow. What is bow? The angels are going up and down what? In fact, this is a debate in the uh, Medrash Rabbah in Parsha Samaches here on our Parsha, what exactly is being described? The first opinion in the Medrash, which is of course the simple shot reading of the Psukim, Malachim Olim Yardim Bo, they're going up and down Bo It, the ladder. They're going up and down the ladder. However, there's a second opinion that says, not the Bo going up and down the ladder, but Olim Yardim Bo about Yaakov. What does that mean that they're going up and down Yaakov? The Medrash explains that they were going up and down in the sense of having good up and then going down, having bad opinions 
about Yaakov. They went up all the way to the heavens and they were wowed because they saw the ikonin, the icon of Yaakov, engraved lamala, engraved up above in heaven. And they were amazed that Yaakov Avinu was engraved up in heaven as the Pesach says in Yeshayahu, Perak Memtes, Yisrael Asher Bacha Esper, wow, Yaakov, Yisrael, I'm amazed by you, wow. But then they were Yardim, then the angels went down and they saw that same Yaakov is fashluft, he's sleeping. So they were going up and down in their opinion about him. Where are they going exactly? Where did they see Yaakov's icon engraved? What are we talking about here? Where is it engraved? So a number of sources, including the Tikkune Zohar, explain that this is actually a reference to the famed Merkava of Yechezkel. We know in the beginning of the Navi Yechezkel, he had a very, very famous prophecy of the Merkava, of a chariot. And of course, on the deepest levels, the understanding of what is the Merkava and what it symbolizes is incredibly mystical, very, very deep, and certainly beyond my personal ability to comprehend. However, we can understand on some simple and basic level the depiction of the Psukim and basic metaphoric meaning of this prophecy. If you look in the beginning of Yechezkel and Perak Aleph, and then again in Perak Yud, where the Merkava is described, we read in the Psukim themselves that this Merkava had four panim, it had four sides, and each one of the sides was uh, engraved with a different depiction. One figure was a Kruv, one of the Kruvim. The second was Adam, a human being. The third, an Aryeh, a lion. And the fourth, a Nesher, an eagle. Says the Tukune Zohar, who was this? And so, as to other sources, who was this? What was this Adam that was engraved on Yechezkel's chariot? It was none other than Yaakov Avinu. You put it all together, it comes out that the angels can't understand. How could this be? We go up and we see Yaakov's face engraved on the famed chariot of Yechezkel. And then we go down and we see that that same Yaakov is sleeping. He's a fishluft. The same Yaakov that could be on the highest mystical, uh, divine, uh, metaphoric images is the same Yaakov that's sleeping. What is going on? Rav Chaim Sabato, the Rosh Hashiva of Malay Adumim, in his beautiful contemporary work, Ahabas Torah, explains as follows. Many sources convey the idea, again, on a deep, on a prosaic level, the kind of level that you and I can understand, that Yechezkel's Merkava, chariot represents the idea of bringing Kavod Shemayim into the world. Just like a chariot brings the king from place to place, so to Hashem's Merkava, Hashem's chariot, brings the honor and understanding of Hashem into this world. Therefore, the four panim, the four things that are uh, surrounding and engraved on the chariot, are the four uh, people, as it were, four figures who are bearing, who are carrying the chariot, bringing God into this world. In other words, what the angels understood, which was shocking to them, was that not only can Chayot HaKodesh, not only can these angels who are depicted by the cherub, the lion, and the nesher, the eagle, not only can the angels be the ones who bear and bring God into the world, but so too can mankind, can lowly man, represented by Yaakov, the same man who sleeps and eats, does other things that angels obviously don't do because they don't need to do it. Even a man, even someone like Yaakov, can be a Merkavala Shina, no less than the other three angels that are helping. That is the incredible interpretation of the Tzkuni Zohar and the Medrash. However, in light of this, Rav Sabato continues and he explains the continuation of the story based on an incredible idea that he heard from his grandfather. After Yaakov has this prophecy, Hashem speaks to him, we read a few psukim later in Pesach Tetzayim that he wakes up. And he says, Surely, indeed, I knew that Hashem is in this place. But, excuse me, Hashem is in this place. But I did not know. What exactly is going on? What all of a sudden Yaakov wakes up and there's something he didn't know? What didn't he realize? 
So Rashi explains that he didn't realize that this was such a holy place. I wouldn't have gone to sleep, he says, if I had realized that I was in such a holy place. However, Sabato, in light of what we've seen until now, quotes from his grandfather and says, no, it's different. Achain, I knew. What does that mean? Achain, three letters. Aleph, Chaf, Nun, symbolizing the Aleph, the Aryeh, the Chaf, the Kruv, and the Nun, the Nesher. I knew that those three angelic figures, they could be the ones who are the bearers of God's chariot, that angels can bring God's honor into this world. Va'anochi loyadati. The same three letters, but one extra letter, the Yud. The Aleph, the Aryeh, the Nun, the Nesher, the Chaf, says Yaakov. I knew that the Nesher, the Aryeh, and the Kruv, I knew the angels could bring Hashem. But Yud, Anochi, the extra Yud, Yaakov, I didn't know that I could do it. I didn't know that I was also on the chariot. I knew that angels can bring Hashem into this world. But that I, a human being, I have the ability, I have the capacity, I have the potential to be a bearer of Hashem's chariot, to bring Hashem into this world. I didn't realize that. Wow, if I knew how holy I was, I never would have slept. Not like Rashi says, if I knew how holy the land was, how holy the place was. If you know how holy I was... I knew about the other three. I didn't know that I could do it. If we truly can comprehend our greatness, that we ourselves are depicted on Hashem's chariot, we'll do great things. The opening of our Parsha begins, and of course this is where the Parsha gets its name from, by telling us, Yaakov left his parental home in Beersheva, is now traveling towards Haran. Of course this is a continuation of where the last Parsha left off. The narrative continues after Yaakov has to flee from his home because Esav has found out that Yaakov got the bracha of the firstborn of the Bechorah. He has announced publicly he wants to kill his brother. And therefore Rivka understands that Yaakov needs to leave the house. She persuades Yitzchak that it's time for Yaakov to find a shidduch and the girls in the local neighborhood aren't appropriate for him. Therefore he needs to travel to a place where hopefully he'll find a more appropriate uh, shidduch. That's where last week's Parsha ended. And now this week's Parsha picks up by telling us, in fact, Yaakov did that. He leaves his parental home, and he's leaving, fleeing his brother Esav, and hopefully looking to move his life forward and get married. The Medrash in Bereshus Rabbah, here in our Parsha, notices a certain redundancy or unnecessary phrase in the Pasuk, which then leads to what I think is actually a profound and incredibly important and instructive lesson. This medrash is actually briefly uh, summarized, partially summarized by Rashi in a very well-known comment, but I think we'll appreciate it even more if we study the full medrash and see Chazal's full interpretation of the events described here in this pasuk. The problem that the medrash is bothered by, that Rashi brings down, is that given the background that I mentioned, this is just a continuation of the previous narrative, we already know Yaakov was in Beersheba, and now you're telling me that he left to Haran. What's the most important part of this Pasuk? That he was going towards Haran. It's not really that important to tell me What's important is to tell me But more than that, it's unnecessary for the Torah, famously so economical with their words, so succinct in the Psukim, barely an extra letter or word, not at all. And yet here, why do you have to tell me these extra words? Isn't that obvious? All you had to tell me was, I would have read the Pasuk, Yaakov went towards Haran. And any person would have deduced, oh, he's going to Haran. I guess that means he left Beersheba. The Torah didn't need to write it. It's obvious. If he's going to Haran, that means he left Beersheba. So why would the Torah, famously so succinct and economical with its words, 
Why would it waste, so to speak, these four words? They're unnecessary. That's the problem that bothers the Medrash, that Rashi partially uh, brings down and tries to answer. And the answer that the Medrash gives is something so instructive, inspiring, and profound. The Medrash asserts that the point is clear, that the Torah is not just giving us a uh, triptych, or the you know stage-by-stage GPS uh, printout of Yaakov's journey. It's not necessary it's not important. When the Torah tells us of a Yetzei Yaakov mi Shava, it's not telling us about physically that he's no longer in the city. We could have figured that out on our own. But rather, it's selling on a more profound spiritual level. His departure from Beersheba left a mark. Because, says the Medrash, when you are in a city, when a great person, when a tzaddik is in a city, b'zman tzaddik b'ir, hu ziva, Huhadra. The tzaddik, that righteous person, is the beauty, the splendor, the grandeur of the city. As we would say more colloquially, the pride of the city. However, the Medrash continues, Yatsamisham, but once that tzaddik leaves, moves on to greener pastures for whatever the reason. Panaziva, Panahadra. All of a sudden, all that grandeur and, and splendor that the tzaddik had given to the city by his mere presence, is unfortunately evaporated, it's gone. And that negatively impacts the city, it's felt. But Yetzi Yaakov when he was not there anymore, you could feel the loss, the absence of his righteousness. The Medrash continues, that part is also already in Rashi, but the Medrash continues and tells us that this is not the only place it happens. In Tanakh later, in Megillas Rus, we read about Naami, right in the beginning, as the story unfolds, because of the famine, she wants to leave and return home, it says, She's leaving the place that she was, and the Psukim continue and tell us where she was going. And here also says the Medrash, Why do you need to tell me that? Isn't it obvious once you told me that she's going back to Eretz Yehuda, she's going back to Eretz Yisrael, isn't it obvious that she's leaving where she was? Why do we need to have both halves of that verse? One would be enough, just like we asked here. And so too says the Medrash, Naomi, who was a righteous woman in her own right, just like Yaakov, when she was in that new location, she was the pride, she was the spiritual splendor and grandeur of that city. When she left, Panaziva, Panahadra. All of a sudden, that city was not the same anymore. It was impoverished by her absence. All of this, more or less, you could find in Rashi. However, in the original Medrash, it continues and asks a question. Why do I need to have this lesson taught to us twice in Tanakh? Just tell it to me once, in either of the places, theoretically. And then I would have known this principle of tzaddik is the ziva, is the hadra, pana, right? The whole thing. I would have known it. I don't need it twice. So one of the places, at least, is extra, is not necessary. Why teach me the same lesson in two places? So says the Medrash, profound and incredible insight. When Rus left, she was, excuse me, when Naomi left, she was the only tzaddiket in her city. So of course, says the Medrash, it's obvious in that case, if, she, if you're the only tzaddik, you're the only tzaddiket, the righteous woman, so of course when you leave, your absence will be felt. However, Hacha says the Medrash, when Yaakov left Beersheba, have Yitzhak Varifka. It wasn't leaving the city exactly abandoned. It wasn't leaving the city bereft of righteous people. His own parents, Yitzhak and Rivka, were there. And therefore, you might have thought, no, when there's only one Sadiq in the town and that Sadiq leaves, of course that's going to make a difference. But if you're leaving behind two other Sadiqim, what's the difference? One Sadiq, two Sadiqim, three Sadiqim, they're still Sadiqim, they're still religious leadership, they're still role models, they're still inspirational figures in the city. And says the Medrash, 
our parsha emphasizes the impact of Yaakov to teach us. Not to take anything from Yitzhak and Rivka, but by having Yaakov also there, it made an impact. And when Yaakov left, despite the fact that Yitzhak and Rivka were still there, his loss was felt. What a powerful lesson about the impact of every individual on their home.